This week's interview is super special. It is filled with the most incredible stories from Caroline, who's a BBC journalist. And I don't even know where to start with her. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with Caroline and I feel like we could have an entire series just talking to her, talking about her um, time as a war correspondent for BBC. And, you know, she, she shared with us some stories of being in Northern Iraq, um, being in Afghanistan, um, meeting people there. There was one thing that struck me when she was talking about uh, this woman that in Afghanistan that they met who was shocked to learn sort of more about Caroline's life, like her background. Um, and, it, and just to quote Caroline, she, she said it was a conversation that turns your entire worldview on its head. And you, you have to listen to it because it's just, just really makes you think about like your perspective on life mm. and how diverse it could be and the experience, how diverse experiences are. And, you know, it, a woman in Afghanistan found it really difficult to understand Caroline's story and her background and just couldn't like fathom that. Yeah. It's, and vice versa. It was fascinating to listen to and to be able to hear these personal stories of countries where we hear these just big, terrible, you know, tales of war. And then Caroline is able to, to give us such personal anecdotes that I would never have been able to, you know, think about. It's, it gives it a really personal perspective. When I thought she couldn't get any more interesting, I just wanted to hear more and more stories from her time as a war correspondent. She also spoke about being adopted and this amazing story about her biological parents uh, sort of meeting again in later life and falling in love. And it was, you couldn't even write, if I was saying, if this was a book, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, that would never happen in real life. And it's such a good story. It's so interesting because her job is focused on telling other people's stories, but her own story is just wild. And I mean, this is like the tip of the iceberg. We didn't even go into like other parts of her, yeah. her life, which you can, there's an abundance of uh, resources online about Caroline. So feel free to, to learn more about her. But this one about her reconnecting with her biological parents and them reconnecting is just wild. Um, and it was really really beautiful to hear that story and, and her relationship with them and, and her adopted parents. Yeah. We need, we need more Caroline stories. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, let's get into the episode, but before we do, of course, got a, just a little word from our sponsor. Talk about yes. multivitamins and I have a strange relationship. I don't know if you experience this, but I feel like I, you know, maybe once a year I get on this like multivitamin train and be like, oh, I need to do this. I need to look after myself. You know, I pick up the, the, you know, the supplements from, from the chemist and I, you know, I'm really good with it. I take it every day. And then as soon as the bottle runs out, it's like, that's it. That's done. I've, I've had my vitamins for the year and <laughs> the next wave of me deciding to get more vitamins. Yeah, me too. I go down to a health food store like once a year. I'm like, heal me and I'll just buy whatever they give me and take maybe three quarters of the bottle and feel really good about myself for that, you know, 20 days that I do it. And then I it just, that's it. That's, that's it. it for months. 
Well, yeah. So with Ritual, obviously, it's a subscription service. So no, no more trips to the pharmacy once a year because once you run out, the next bottle's there ready for you to go and you can just make sure you're you know, keeping, keeping up to date with your multivitamin intake. And it's nice to know that what's in there is actually useful. Like I'm not just taking a random multivitamin that I found or that somebody else told me about. Like it's really carefully researched and what's in there matters. So if you want to you know, start down this train with us, continue on it. We have a special offer for our listeners, uh, 10% off during your first three months. If you go to ritual.com forward slash bird. And you can start your subscription today. I mean, head over there because they've got vitamins for everybody. They've got whole new products. They've got postnatal, prenatal, different ages, teens, uh, vitamins for men as well. So I'm sure you can find something for you. Yeah, got to get my husband started as well. But that is ritual.com forward slash bird. And it's 10% off for your first three months. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your flexibility and your also your willingness to be a part of this, be, to be another bird. I ask people every single day for work to talk to us, so I just sort of feel it's the only thing to do is when people ask is generally to say yes. <laughs> I think it's nice. It's also, for, for my end, very nerve-wracking, obviously. Your history, your work, all of these things, you're a true journalist, so to be asking you questions, i got to be honest, I'm feeling nervous. No, it's really nice to be asked questions because... What I do normally is ask other people questions. I'm fascinated by the answers, but actually, if you ask any journalist, would you like to talk about yourself? Most of the 99% will say, yeah. <laughs> Finally, an opportunity. With that, I, I did have a question I wanted to start with, and that is, you know, looking back over your sort of 30-odd years of working as a journalist, are there any thoughts or memories that sort of a key to you that stand out when you sort of reflect on your time? There are so many that if we had five hours, that wouldn't be long enough. But for me, I think what I loved most about the early part of the first 15 years of what I did was being a foreign correspondent. And that was what I always wanted to be ever since I saw an ad in my dad's paper, I think, when I was about 15, that was looking for a Berlin correspondent. And I think it was... Either for the BBC or the Times, I can't remember, but I just thought the idea that you could have this as a job where you were paid to go abroad, learn a language, get to know people, get to know a culture, and all of that, that that, that was actually paid employment, seemed like a miracle. And when I joined the BBC, I was incredibly lucky because about two years in, after two years of training, a job came up and it was for the BBC's Berlin business correspondent. And... That was pretty close to my dream job at the age of about, I think, 25. And I remember getting in a car, going to Berlin. I had one suitcase of stuff. And that was the beginning of about 15 years on the road as a foreign correspondent based in Berlin and Bonn, Moscow and Paris, and then working as defence correspondent, so further flung covering wars. And it probably is the wars that stand out the most in terms of the dreams of what it was like in Afghanistan or in Iraq or what it was like for the people there, mm-hmm. for the civilians as well as for the armies. Oh, 
again, there's, there's just so many different stories coming out of all of those places that there are some that really, really do stick in my mind, but they tend to be the really tragic ones, the ones where people lost their family, lost their loved ones, got blown up, or saw their children die. And I suppose those are the ones that do stick with you. And there are some stories of hope where, you know, families were reunited, people in refugee camps discovered that not all of their family was dead and they were able to meet up with their husband or wife again. I mean, that was particularly the case with the Yazidi, which was the last story I covered properly abroad in 2014 when they were being driven out of their homes in northern Iraq. And we were up in northern Iraq and it was just at the very beginning of it where the world didn't know what was happening. And the stories that the refugees were telling us just seemed so dark, so bleak, so horrible, the way that their neighbours had turned on them as mm -hmm. they told the stories, that we found it really hard to believe for the first day or two. And it was only, I suppose, on day three or four where the stories were so consistent that we just had to believe that these horrors were going on in our modern world. And that was, yeah, another story or assignment that will stay with me forever. Being a part of that, documenting that, hearing these stories, you know, how do you see yourself as a human being amongst all of this? And kind of what, where is your boundary between your work and who you are and your own experience throughout it all? Mm, that is a really, really good question because I think it's different for everyone. And for me, I got to the limit of what I could do in about 2014, and it was after that trip to northern Iraq, and we were only there for, gosh, I suppose 14 days or so, but... It was an extreme of human misery at a level that I don't think I'd ever experienced before. And it was at the end of those two weeks where I realized I couldn't actually do that job anymore, that it would stay with me mm. and that I couldn't separate myself and my thoughts from the stories that I was hearing. And I'd had that to a certain degree before in Afghanistan, but I think it's a bit like boiling a frog. That it happens gradually over time that you can do certain jobs for a period and then literally you just can't do it anymore because you feel that either you want to get involved and you want to go there and just help those people, that journalism is no longer enough or that, not that you're exploiting them because I think that would be different because you're, you are trying to get their story out so that they can get the help that they need so that, in that case, you know, the international community needed to take action. Refugee camps did finally get going. They were given somewhere to live. In many cases, a lot of the Yazidis, especially the women and young girls, did manage to get asylum elsewhere. But even though you're doing, trying to help people get asylum or get a place in a refugee camp, find food, find shelter, I think I did at the end feel that yeah, doing journalism wasn't enough in that particular case that, I don't know, some journalists go into politics, some of my loveliest colleagues have done that, other people go into another colleague, did actually start a charity to help Yazidi families. For me, I think I realised probably a little earlier when I was covering war that it definitely had a time limit on it. You can, when you're young, I think separate yourself out more easily because things seem exciting and they're an adventure and they're on a flight. I remember going to Baghdad for the first time in, it was Christmas 97 or 98, and I'd never been to Iraq before. And although it was dangerous or felt quite dangerous, largely because Saddam Hussein was still in power then, 
and we were followed around the streets and you couldn't talk to people. You could feel the fear that people had of Saddam Hussein. But at the time, it just felt exciting. It felt a little bit dangerous, but not too bad. And it wasn't until later in places like Helmand, when we embedded with British troops, that you really felt, actually, I could lose life or limb here, mm. but above all the people that we're filming with and interviewing, they could lose life and limb. And then the summer of 2009 in Helmand was horrific. It was just horrendous in terms of the number of dead. And that was for British soldiers, but also for, for Afghan civilians who were being blown up by the improvised explosive devices that were being left there by Taliban fighters. And there was one road that the Cameroon Julie Ritson and I went down. And as we drove down that road, we're in the back of a military vehicle, a taxi bus came towards us and it swerved far off the road because they were in a hurry. They didn't want to stop. They didn't want to go slowly past our vehicle. And they got got blown up and that killed mm. 20 people, family, on their way to a family celebration. Yeah. And they were all dead. And I remember later that day seeing the faces of the people who had been doing the clearing up after those deaths. And again, that was another point where I just thought, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. I just feel like, I mean, I have so many thoughts and emotions just hearing those stories and being somebody who's grown up in the Western world and never having to encounter tragedy like that, there is this idea of, I don't know if it's exciting, but there, there is a draw to go to these places. We, we know of them through television and journalism and things like that. And it kind of made me think when you said when you first went out there and it didn't feel so dangerous and there was this element of, of excitement to it. And then I think I think comes with that a bit of privilege of you know not not being from that place and being able to get out of that place. But then I imagine after the years and years and years that the more time you spend in there, those worlds become more I guess aligned. Even though you're able to leave, but you you they become more familiar and it becomes a lot more real then. And and you get to know people. So going back and forth to the Kabul office, the people we work with there our colleagues became friends as well and you started to get to know a lot more about their lives and also I think realise the risks that you're asking your colleagues to run if they're from that place that they themselves may be threatened as a result of their work and I think that was something that with I suppose the advancing years I became much more aware of that putting other people at risk to get a story to me sometimes actually by the end of that particular role didn't always feel worth it. But while the desk in London might say, oh yes, we want something from, you know, X place in Afghanistan, you knew that to get there and to go there would actually, oh, sorry, I don't know how to turn off the pinging things. Anyway. <laughs> no worries. Um, so yes, cut those out. <laughs> yeah. But yes, that, that what you're asking other people to do, be that the camera person or the producer or the, the translator that you were working with, that the, there was also a risk to them and that it was difficult for their families quite often as well. That, you know, in Afghanistan in particular, if you're trying to do, I don't know, a story about corruption, for example, that that, that could actually put your Afghan colleagues at much more risk than you, the Western journalist. And there, there might be risk to you as a Westerner, but the risks were always far greater for the people who came from those places. And the same thing applies in Iraq as well, that yes, we all run risks, but the risks were far, far greater for our local staff. And I think 
that's something that journalists have become much more aware of over the last 10, 20, 30 years, that, you know, you really do bear that responsibility, that even if you, I don't know, hire a producer or someone local to fix stories for you, you are responsible for them. They are an employee of the place that you're working. Mm-hmm. And there is a fabulous freelance trust foundation called Rory Pet Trust, that now does help freelancers in the, all of those areas because I think a lot of the time since about 2001, since Al-Qaeda, I suppose, and the Twin Tower bombing, journalists have become aware that journalists are now a target in a way that we weren't prior to that. And I think that has made Western journalists more cautious but also more aware of yeah the need to treat people well when we go to places. Not that we didn't before, but I just think that there was a lack of responsibility perhaps before that's become much, much clearer now. Has that changed the kind of stories that are covered? I think it it has and it hasn't. We seem now in a lot of places to do more hands-off journalism, use more citizen journalism. So if you look at coverage of Syria, people are very well aware, I think now, thanks to the amazing journalism that was done by people like Marie Colvin, of just how dangerous it is to go in to report or to be a Syrian citizen reporting. And a lot of Western organisations in the media, I think, are much less willing to let people go. There's a less gung-ho attitude now. And I think we're better, partly because the world has changed because of the internet and the ability of people to send out video, etc., that we do do a lot more journalism using other people's sources, trying to actually stand up those stories and make sure that they are true and that the video that you see is genuinely what it says it is. And I think that's a a real advance that's possible because of the kind of technology that we now have. So also I think there's a real question now about telling other people's stories, Mm. that because we can now hear, say, from someone in Syria talking about their lives, that for almost any audience, that is what you want. The idea that you send in someone from the West who doesn't necessarily speak the language or know a huge amount about the culture now seems, I suppose, very old-fashioned, that you, you think, no, we want to hear the experiences of the people there. We don't need them mediated in quite the same way. When we spoke previously, you said something about the women in, in Afghanistan that stood out to you. What did you mean by that? I think it was sort of all the places I've been, the women in Afghanistan and Iraq in particular, just struck me as some of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And whether that was women politicians in Afghanistan or Iraq, or just normal women getting through their lives. You know, I always came back to London or to Moscow in the olden days with the feeling that these were some of the strongest human beings I had ever encountered because, you know, I've come back to my wonderful, luxurious life of running water, of heating, of, you know, a decent roof over my head. And within maybe a week or two weeks, that feeling of gratitude would wear off. But just spending time in places like Helmand, I remember going with Julie Cameron to a compound and the amazing thing about going with a female camera person was that we were allowed into a compound and could speak to the women there, women and children, in a way that you know men not, or strange men, non-family members, were not allowed in. And we sat talking to a farmer's wife for, I suppose, about two, three hours one afternoon. It was quite amazing. We had a female translator with us. And we sort of had gone into the compound, and it was just a very basic 
dwelling with mud walls, no windows, no proper door, very traditional home. And she had about 10 children all running around, all really healthy. And she was a farmer's wife, so they were, relatively speaking, well off because they had their own crops, they had enough food to eat, um, they didn't have a car because that would have been an unimaginable luxury for that particular area. But I suppose Julie and I went in there feeling not quite superior, but just that, you know, we as Westerners had a good life, etc., and maybe feeling a little sorry for this woman, having to look after her 10 kids. By the end of the three hours, we walked out just thinking, wow, because she was so happy and so content with her life. And she turned the conversation around to the two of us and said, so, so what about, you know, your husbands and children? And Julie and I both said, well, we're not married and we don't have any children and she felt so sorry for us and she said but what do you do with your lives and we said well we work you know this is what we do we travel all the time and we go to places she said well does, does your father know that you're over here and we said yep yep our dads know that we're here <laughs> do your brothers know that you're here and he said, yeah yeah and they let you come on your own and it was just one of those conversations that turns your entire worldview on its head here is a woman she as she said she was very lucky because she liked her husband, he didn't beat her, she had 10 healthy children, you know, she had been amazingly lucky by the standards of where she was living. And she looked at our lives and just thought that they were pitiful. And the whole idea that you would be out in strange places where people were setting up bombs and shooting each other, that this was a very odd thing to do indeed. And that sort of flipping of perception, again, it stayed with me that I don't think you can ever judge other people's lives because you're always applying your own standards to them. Definitely. And actually it's possible to be happy in so many different ways. It's incredible to hear that story coming from a woman that's living in Afghanistan. I don't know, is that story an exception to the rule in Afghanistan or is the perception of Afghanistan? Uh, I say that because I'm thinking of the numbers, you know, and I'm not sure if Afghanistan is the most dangerous place for a woman to live or the second most dangerous, but it's something like that. Yeah, certainly up there, I think partly because of you know, things like maternal mortality. Um, that was one of the big issues in Helmand, for example, that so many of the children would die before their fifth birthday because there was very, very little medical help available and relatively little knowledge that because families were being shattered by war and thrown apart, that the necessary kind of knowledge wasn't necessarily being handed down from mother to child to the next generation. And, you know, that was one of the things that some of the forces they were trying to do was train local midwives to be able to go out and check on babies and make sure they were right. Because the one thing that the Helman farmer's wife said she would really appreciate was better medical care, that when the children did become sick, that she could take them somewhere, but without a car, she couldn't get to the one district hospital because it was about 20 miles away from where she lived, and that was far too far to go and too expensive to go to. So one of the things that also struck me about doing war reporting was that you focus on the battles and you focus on the fights, but what you very rarely do focus on, and that applies to, to the media generally, is what is normal life like outside the fire fights or the battles or the babies or the deaths? What are people's normal lives like? And in 2001, when we first went to northern Afghanistan, so just after 9-11 happened, 
that again was such a strange time because I hadn't really spent a lot of time in Afghanistan before that. I'd been to different countries in the area to report on what life was like there. And again, Julie and I were working together, so we did manage to just sit down and chat to women. And the thing that completely blew my mind at that stage was that a lot of the older women said how much happier they'd been during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, that they had had the chance because of the Soviet invasion to go off to the former Soviet Union, or Soviet Union as it then was, to go to universities, to study, to train as engineers. And then once they'd come back to the north and the Russians had left, they were told to go home and not really leave the house again. And so for the women who'd had that chance of an education, the years after the Russian occupation were actually years of frustration. And again, it was something that I think if I hadn't sat there talking to those women, it would never have occurred to me that the invasion could have been seen as a good thing. Yeah. But for them, it was, you know, a period of a few years where life was completely changed. And, you know, they were still fighting there to kind of get those rights back again. But again, I think that when you go to do war reporting somewhere, again, you tend to focus as media on the bangs and the stuff that gets on that night's news. And I think that maybe, maybe now the focus might shift more to the kind of everyday life of, of mm-hmm. what is it like to be an Afghan woman. And I think those sort of things are helped by the internet, by the fact that you know, women I know in Afghanistan can now tweet, for example, and that mm-hmm. might not sound like much, but they've had more education there over the past 10 years or so than you know, probably in decades. And literacy and all of these things that, that are vitally important are the sort of things that by and large we tend not to report on. Right. Yeah, it's so complex. So it's like when you're when you're talking about somebody's life, if you're talking about it through that moment in time, without the broader context, it could be perceived in so many different ways. So if we if you spoke to a woman who had lived through the Soviet uh, occupation and now you know wasn't able to be an engineer or was sitting at home, and if you just talked about to her at that time and she's sitting at home that frustration. And then versus somebody who was born into that, um, maybe the example of the woman with the 10 children and, you know, her perception, her perspective on her life. And I guess I don't really know where I'm going with that. It just boggles my mind. And it reminds me of something once my brother-in-law said when I was asking him about uh, World War Two in Poland. My family's Polish. So I was asking him, like, you know, tell me some stuff about the war. And he said, well, to truly understand the war, you have to go way back. You have to go back to like the 15th century. And he starts talking about stuff back then. And I, I just like lost my attention on that. I was like, no, that's not what, I'm t- what I want to know about. I want to know about now. But I think that's what, where he was getting at is like, there's this context and it's so hard to understand this big thing that happened without knowing all the other things or the things that led up to it. on the way that societies and people and families in particular remember the past and use it and how it gets used by politicians as well. Because I remember going to Kosovo in 99 and, you know, I'd read lots of books about it and the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. But until you got there, until you talked to people and realised that the past was still very much present in their brains because these were the stories they'd been told since childhood as to, you know, what land belonged to them or what their culture was and should be and whether or not they felt represented in their government. All of those things went back hundreds and hundreds of years. And 
I think for me that was one of the first times where I realised how important it was that, you know, I had spent a lot of time reporting on Europe and reporting on Germany. And of course in Germany, history is ever-present. Mm. And going to Poland, history was ever-present. And when I went to report on, I think it was the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I found out about my natural grandfather who'd been in Auschwitz, and that put a whole different complexion mm. on what I was seeing and reporting on when I met survivors. Yeah, that's fascinating. I actually want to take this opportunity to switch topics because um, I'm mindful of time and I could definitely keep talking about this forever, but I really want to dig into your, your sort of family history, which you just touched on there. And you were saying that you were you were actually born in Australia and... Yes, I was adopted in Sydney, mm-hmm. or rather I think the papers went through in Canberra, but my British father, my adopted dad, was a diplomat and he was based in Australia with my adopted mother Anna-Marie who was a Swiss nurse and they'd already adopted my two older brothers and they wanted a third child and so they got me and it was one of those things where you know fate has a huge part to play in the way that your life turns out and I think particularly for adoptees that's probably truer than for most because by random chance, I was the next baby that came along and they became my parents. And I was so lucky to have an absolutely wonderful adoptive family. And it did mean that we ended up traveling the world and you know, living in lots of different places. I grew up speaking Swiss German, probably as my first language, English as my second. And I didn't really come and live in England until I went to boarding school at about the age of 10. And then my adoptive mother died. And it was only after she died, I think, that I really did get curious about my origins and, you know, who was my natural mother, was she still in Australia, what was her story, what had it been like for her to have to give up a child. And so when I got to, I think it was about 22 or 23, I started to, to really think seriously about going to Australia to look. And then I had a really good chance to go after I'd finished a journalism degree at City University in London. And I had... I think it was about six months in between finishing that and beginning a job at the BBC. And I thought, well, if there's one thing I really want to do while I still have the time, it's to go and see if I can find my natural mother and just say to her, you know, I'm okay and thank you. Thank you for giving me to this wonderful family and for the wonderful life that I've had. And so I travelled out to Australia and started the search and then pretty quickly discovered that the laws at the time didn't allow me to find out her full name. So I got non-identifying information in Sydney from the hospital in Darlinghurst where I'd been born. But all that said was her first name, not a surname. Mm-hmm. And it was only because I, I was very lucky. I met someone who was working for a campaign on behalf of adoptees to get their original birth certificates and they invited me to I think, a tea party at Parliament, something like that. And I went to the tea party and there was the chief registrar of birth deaths and marriages, someone in his office who said, well, they could just have a look and check and see where, whether my birth certificate was there. And so they did. And so I got the first couple of letters of my mother's surname. And with that, because they were an immigrant family who'd come into the country just after the war on a ship, I could go off to the shipping records and try and find my family. And by doing that, I finally managed to track down my natural mother and got a friend to see if she was willing to talk to me. And it was clear that she was. And so I called her up one evening from my flat in, I think it was Potts Point in Sydney, and spoke to my mother for the first time. 
when I was 23 and she had this wonderful, beautiful voice <laughs> and just sounded like such a warm and lovely human being that after, I suppose, about an hour and a half on the phone, which was utterly surreal because I called her up and said, is that Irina? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I think you're my mother. And she said, yeah, I think you probably wow. are my daughter. Oh, my gosh. And that was, yeah, that was such a bizarre and wonderful conversation to have because it was just a kind of getting to know you. And so I found out a little bit more about her, that she got pregnant when she was 16, 17, by accident, came from a very Catholic Polish immigrant family. And, of course, this was back in 1967, a terrible, terrible scandal. And mm. her parents were upset and she was upset and... She hadn't remembered, actually, when I first spoke to her, that actually her then-boyfriend, Alan, did offer to marry her, but she had dismissed this offer because he was far too irresponsible. So she decided the best course to take was to have me adopted. But on the basis of that one conversation with her, I quit my job and flew up to Brisbane the next day to go and meet her. Mm -hmm. And it was just wonderful <laughs> to go and meet this family that, you know, I'd never met them before, I'd never spoken to any of the others, and there was so much more to find out. And they were just lovely, wonderful people. And then it did get better because my natural mother, although she wasn't terribly curious to see my natural dad again, did give me his name, and I found out through a mutual friend how to contact him. So I went to meet him and decided that he was absolutely lovely and possibly still a bit irresponsible. But then he came up for that Christmas to stay with my natural mother and they ended up falling in love. That's yeah. crazy. And then they married. That's a <laughs> movie. It was, I think, we all, yeah, it was just incredible. We went to midnight mass all together and they, we stopped talking all the way through Christmas Day. And on Boxing Day, they walked in hand in hand and said, we're getting married, we've fallen in love again. Oh and gosh. they did. And they had seven very happy years together. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a, wow. <laughs> I didn't even know what to say. I don't know. To be able to have that moment of you and your, your natural parents. It was miraculous, I think. It was just one of those things about timing. But at that time, you know, my mom was single, my natural father was single, and... It was the right time in their lives, and she continued to say that however happy she was with him when they met the second time, she knew that it wouldn't have worked the first time around mm. because they were both far too young. So she'd been 17 when she had me, he was 19 at the time, and I think probably quite an immature 19-year-old. And it was, yeah, life is all about timing. Mm. And for them, it was the right time to meet when they were older and a bit more kind of, I think, forgiving of each other's faults because neither of them was perfect. Mm -hmm. And they were so happy together because she moved into his place in northern New South Wales, in Yurala. And they lived a very kind of rural life, which again was not something that she wanted in her teens. Mm -hmm. She was dying to get away from a small country town, Australia, and move to a big city. And did end up going to Sydney and then back up to Brisbane and just having, you know, a much more city life. But when they met again and married, I think all she really did crave was that kind of domestic security that you've got your own house, you've got the dog, you've got the cat, you've got the garden, and you've got your friends all around you. And she loved it. What was your relationship like with them once you returned to London? It was fabulous because they ended up coming over here to visit. And there was one evening where all of my parents, so all four of them, 
my father, my stepmother, and my natural father, and my natural ma- mother, all got together for dinner. And that was surreal, kind of being able to unite those two halves and get them all to meet up. And that felt wonderful, because it just kind of brought the two halves of my lives together. Mm. And I don't think there's many adoptees who get to do that. Again, there was no bitterness on anyone's part. And I think that although it's probably not easy for adoptive parents to acknowledge both parents, my dad has been amazing about that and just so welcoming to Irina and to Alan. And I think that, for me, certainly healed that kind of wound that I Mm. felt was there, that if you are adopted, you always do wonder about what happened to that other family. And I know from other people experiences that it isn't always easy and they don't always get that kind of I suppose closure but for me it was fantastic because for all of the years that I was traveling around so from when I first met my natural mother from 90 whatever year that was 1990 until she died in 2006 we would write emails to each other once email was a thing um but we'd also write letters she was a great great letter writer and I still have a massive suitcase full of all of her letters with all of her news, but news about her family, my aunt, my cousins. And that felt like a really healing process Mm. that she was back in my life. And it wasn't that I was lacking something in my adoptive family because they are wonderful, but it was just a whole different part of me, I suppose, that I'd been missing before, that who do you look like Mm. and what were the circumstances. And once I met her and met Alan and knew the circumstances, there was nothing there but you know, thankfulness that they did what they did and enabled me to have the life that I have had because, again, it's that everlasting and really fascinating debate between nurture and nature and what you get from where. And I think all children are a real mixture of what they get from their parents, what they get from their education and friends. But in my case, it was even more complex because I remember on the first night when I met my mother, she held up her hand and she had the same hands as me. Hmm. And I looked down and I, she had the same feet and she had the same knees and I'd never experienced that before. I think with that nature versus nurture thing, um, which is fascinating in itself, I want to take this opportunity to maybe wrap up our conversation with that in that, you know, with what's happening right now in the world. I don't know. What, what are your sort of thoughts or feelings as you look to the year ahead? I just hope we get out of lockdown. Um, I think we are going to have to be incredibly patient as a human race for probably another year, year and a half, maybe two years, until we get a vaccine. I think we're going to have to get used to living a very different life that you know doesn't have as many hugs or social events or occasions mm-hmm. where, you know, thank goodness that we have got the internet that we can Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and see each other, but nothing replaces actually being able to hug your family, your brothers, you know, nieces, great nieces. I am really missing seeing my family. Mm. And I think that goes for everyone who isn't living together. And I think that we are going to have to be incredibly careful because, you know, the most vulnerable among us I'm probably going to have to stay shielded or a bit more sheltered for, yeah, a good year or so. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the nice things that have happened during lockdown continue as well, kind of getting to know your neighbours better, you know, like where I live. We talk to each other much more across yeah. the hallways or up and down the stairs, probably than we ever did before. And, you know, we help each other in ways that we probably didn't do before or weren't 
thinking about that much and now the getting to know people around you I you know at a social distance I talk to people in my supermarket and that you know I don't think that's ever happened here before yeah and, and maybe maybe we can keep some of the good things and not worry too much about I don't know the, well, the lack of football doesn't bother me but it bothers my parents because um, they are great football fans and very very upset about not having football to go to <laughs> But, you know, it's also shown that things like working from home are possible yeah. and that you can keep in touch with friends much, much better than before. I mean, it made me realise how little I talk to some of my really old friends and it's been a fantastic opportunity to catch up with them. But then I know I'm really, really privileged. I'm still employed. I'm not freelance. I haven't lost all my income. And so I hope that for the sake of business and... Yeah, all the people who urgently need to start getting back to work, that lockdown does start to loosen a bit and that we can keep the rate of, you know, the spread of coronavirus down as much as possible while trying to get back to whatever the new normal looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all of that stuff is definitely going through my mind. It's funny that you say about the neighbours because after this I'm actually going out the back on our deck to give some um, chocolate chip cookies to my neighbour for her birthday, <laughs> which oh, I would never have done that before, you know. And I think that's one of the things that maybe we lost when we were all terribly, terribly busy. And I think after, after lockdown ends, we may also think much more carefully about how we use our time because yeah. you do realise that pre-lockdown, I don't know, there was an awful lot of rushing around. Definitely. And you think, well, could, could I have a eat some of these same things in different ways yeah. and maybe just kept up more with you know a lot of relatives by phone more in the past as well and I hope that endures the kind of willingness to reach out and especially to people around where we live yeah definitely it's it's made me reflect on you know how busy what was I or how anxious was I and how much of that was being covered by keeping busy yeah, and just rushing around and not really thinking about why you were rushing around and sort of looking at the diary and thinking, oh, why am I doing all these things? Yeah. And I was talking to one of my brothers who said, you know what, before this hit, I was dreading the amount of travel I was just about to do for work. And then suddenly coronavirus hit and I didn't have to do any of the travel. And you know what? It's been amazing. I feel like I've slept mm. for the first time in years. And I think maybe, you know, there are some good sides and sleep is definitely one of them. Yeah. Definitely. Well, on that note, Caroline, I want to say a huge thank you for sharing those incredible stories and, you know, wishing you all the best during this time as well. Have a lovely rest of your Sunday. And thank you. That was fun. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. It was, it was a real treat and an honor. I, I just, I'll, I'll end by saying I was really looking forward to this and, you know, I, I could, I could do five more interviews with you because uh, there's definitely a lot more I'd love to ask. <laughs> Excellent. What well, we shall.